0: privilege and joy to speak to you once again. Uh, you're my church family, church folk, the ones that have invested in me, the ones who have helped me along the way for the past six and a half years, and it is a joy to give back to you a portion of what you've given to me spiritually. After a long, hard winter down in Danforth, Maine, I want to say thank you for your prayers. I really appreciate them very much so. They were felt down there like you wouldn't believe. The small part that you folks played just in prayer was more to me than anything else Uh, going through two and a half months of sickness battling that during a long cold winter and uh, being in and out of canada and maine for my health care you folks really played a small part and i want to thank you for that i appreciate your support back here over this past few years well i invite you to take your bibles this evening with me to titus chapter two titus chapter two this evening very familiar passage of scripture I'm sure, Titus chapter 2, and uh, looking at God's great grace, God's great grace, and three benefits that we can have from the grace of God. God's great grace from Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, we will begin reading at verse 11. It says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. This says, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. Just that far this evening, and we'll bow for prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you and praise you for the opportunity we have once again to open the Word of God. A living book written by a living Savior, Lord, and it's only because of you that we are alive and live. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity, this privilege. We ask and pray tonight that your Holy Spirit would speak through me the words of life. We ask and pray that we'd be able to take these words home from us, Lord, that this message would not fall upon deaf ears, but it would go forth from the pulpit out these doors into the community so that people may see who we are and why we are who we are. It's because You have changed us. Bless us now we pray for it's in Jesus' name. Amen. God's great grace. The first thing that comes to mind tonight is a new song, a contemporary song written by a guy named Matt Redmond. He actually wrote the song that we just sang, 10,000 Reasons. And this pretty well puts God's great grace into the perspective that we need to see it in tonight. It says, It's there in the newborn cry. It's there in the light of every sunrise. It's there in the shadows of this light, Your great grace. It's there in the mountaintop, and it's there in the everyday and the mundane, there in the sorrow and the dancing, Your great grace. Oh, such grace. From the creation to the cross, and from the cross into eternity, Your grace finds me. Yes, Your grace finds me. It's there on the wedding day. There in the weeping by the graveside, there in the very breath we breathe, Your great grace. It's the same for the rich and poor. That's everybody, all classes of people. It's the same for the saint and for the sinner, enough for the whole wide world. Your great grace, oh such grace. There in the darkest night of the soul, there in the sweetest song of victory, Your great grace finds me. Your great grace finds me. That pretty well puts into perspective where God's grace is, isn't it? God's grace is everywhere. There's not a place that you cannot go without finding God's grace in your life tonight. Not a place you cannot go this week without God's grace being there. It is everywhere present tonight. And it's going to be with you everywhere present the rest of your life. Well, a guy by the name of Richard, he didn't care about the Bible. He really had no, he really had no interest in reading the scriptures. And the reason being was because he was a Muslim. So he had received a Bible from a Muslim missionary over in Nigeria. And what in the world to do with a Bible that you do not read or have no interest in? Well, he had a good purpose for it, or so he thought. We wouldn't think it was, but he... Cigarette papers for rolling your own cigarettes were pretty expensive then. So he took a page of the Bible each day and ripped it out and used it to roll his cigarettes. Well, on one occasion, somehow, some way, he had just got sidetracked, and he took that page from the Bible, he crumpled it up and threw it in his pocket, and there it sat. And there it is night... By his bedside, he took that paper out for some unknown reason and it said, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed are they that find rest in me. That's from Psalms. And he found that and he took that verse and he went back to that missionary that gave him the Bible and he heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and was saved by this grace that we're going to talk about tonight. God's great grace. Each and every one of us have a story here tonight. Whether saved or not, that will affect whether God's grace has touched your life or not. But each of us have a story of God's grace impacting our lives and being imparted to us. Not only at the time of salvation, but for everyday living. Grace does not stop at salvation. It's for the everyday living again. Well, Titus chapter 2, and verse 11 to 14, we find that... Paul is writing to Titus, who was pastoring a church that is on the island of Crete. Very uh, very ungodly place. You could say it was the Nineveh of Jonah. It's pretty well the parallel to Jonah and Nineveh. And he was on the island of Crete, and Paul is writing to Titus saying, this is the reason I want to write to you about God's grace. Because if you back up a verse to verse 10, it says this, just toward the end of it, the second part, that they may adorn the doctrine of God and our Savior in all things. This is a call to adorn the grace of God. In other words, the grace that you have been saved with, the grace that you have been saved by, that is in this living book. Take the doctrines of God, the scriptures of God, and align your life up with the grace that you have been saved with. That's why he says in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3, preach sound doctrine. He says that to Titus in chapter 1, that thou teachest no other doctrine but that which is sound. Why? Because we have a lot of people that are perverting the grace of God. A lot of people that are saying that it means something else. And that way looks attractive. And people want to follow that way. But teach no other thing other than sound doctrine because that is what we need to align our lives with. We do not need to align our lives with anything else. Number one in this grace that we find from verse 11. It says, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation. I'm going to stop right there grace of God that us salvation. I've simply entitled this message tonight, How Are You Living? Very simple. How are you living? Because it's a call to align your lives with the gospel of God's grace, is what it is. How are you living? The first thing that God's grace does, in verse 11, we see that God's grace saves. God's grace saves. And in this section, it's a call to live in response to this wonderful grace. Under the fact that God's grace saves, number one, it redeems. Number one, it redeems. We have to go back to Ephesians chapter 2 and we're going to spend most of the time there under this point of God's grace redeeming because this is where we start. In order to find out where we were and why we need this God's grace, we've got to find out where we were. And Ephesians chapter 2 puts it all into light for us because it tells us who we are. It tells us where we were before His great grace touched us. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 and 5, it says, And you hath he quickened, who are yet dead in trespasses and sin. And then it come down to verse 5 in Ephesians 2, it says, And even we were dead in sins, hath he quickened and made alive unto God. Dead in trespasses and sins, no hope whatsoever. We were totally alienated from Christ, without hope, it says in verse 12, we were alienated with Christ, we needed a Savior. This grace saves, it redeems. Why? Because we are totally alienated from Christ. We have no hope. That's in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1 and 5. This means that the heathen is lost. Why? Because man is dead to the things that are spiritual. The heathen is lost. And this is where God's grace comes in and redeems. Because it gives a sad commentary on who we were before. But if you come down to verse 8, it says, For by grace, 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 Are you saved through faith? And that and all of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For by grace, a lot of people say God's love saves people. A lot of people say God's mercy saves people. God's love saves nobody. God's mercy saves nobody. tell you why, God's love is what motivated him to come down to earth. That's all God's love did. It motivated. He loves each and every one of us, but all it did was motivate. Why? Because Romans 5, 8 says, God commanded his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. His love motivated. Mercy doesn't save anybody either. The only thing that saves people is God's grace through simple faith. That's the only thing that saves people. You get that in verse 5. It says, by grace you are saved. And again in verse 8 and 9. Not of works, lest any man should boast. God's grace redeems us. What's grace? Grace is God giving us something that we don't deserve. That is a free gift of salvation we don't have to work for. Mercy. He's holding back what we do deserve. That is hell. He's holding back His wrath. What we do deserve. So God's grace saves. It redeems. Not only does it redeem, but it's revealed. Look at the second part of verse 11 here. The verse 11 in Titus chapter 2. Second part. It says... Hath appeared to all men the grace of God the bringing salvation hath appeared to all men this is the revelation of Jesus Christ it deals with the incarnation of of Christ John chapter one and verse fourteen it says he came full of grace and truth this is full of grace not only do we need redemption for sinners but we need the revelation of the Savior now you look at this on the onslaught I was thinking about this and I'm thinking this is kind of backwards okay because first you've got the redemption, and then you've got the Savior coming to the world to proclaim all of this. Well, if you look way, way back into eternity, it's not really backwards. Because in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, the promise of the Messiah was there. And the promise for salvation was there. So, this verse kind of seems flip-flopped in the light that uh, He came in the second part of the verse rather than the first part of the verse. But if you look back in eternity, it's not flip-flopped because Him redeeming people was from eternity past. This grace that saves us, it has to do with redeeming us. It has to do with the revelation of the Savior, the revelation of the Savior. It was God manifesting the flesh. Now we know that this grace is made available to all men. We know also that not all men are going to be saved. It says in First Timothy chapter two and verse four that He knows those that are His, but it's not His will that any should perish. From Second Peter three nine. All this salvation made available to all men, full of grace and and truth. It was available through God's grace. But we know, sadly, that not all men are going to come to Christ, but it is covered for all men. This grace saves us. Not only does it save us, here's the part where I want to get into. It schools us. Schools us. And this basically talks about training us. The education that we have for life. The education that we are receiving right here right now on this earth. This grace schools us. The word here rendered as teaching is originally meant to train children to chasten or to discipline us in this life. That's originally what it meant, but today it is known as to educate or to instruct. He shows us this grace to educate us and to instruct us in the path in which we are to go. It says in verse 12, teaching us that denying ungodliness is the first one. Deny. What's deny mean? Simply to renounce, to refuse, to reject, to put away, throw away those things out of your life. This is not talking about an ongoing thing. This is talking about a once for all warm Wearsby be said. Once for all. Deny, reject these things that are in the passage of Scripture. Once and for all. Once for all. I like that. We know that's probably not going to happen because we do have a human heart and uh, we find ourselves going back to the things that are ungodly and uh, That's just normal, I guess, for the human heart. And uh, we pick ourselves up again and repent. But uh, this is talking about a once for all putting away of these things. It's telling us first to deny ungodliness. Anything that has to do with going against what God says. Very simple. It's an irreverence towards God and His gospel. It could be wickedness. But nonetheless, we are to support, not to support ungodliness or take part in anything that is of the sort if we are saved christians should look to please god and not defile him sort the has to do it's an ignorance toward god and his gospel And man we've preached up and down the saint john river valley area for years and years and years and uh, a lot of people in your ministry that you have with the people around you i think you can see that there's a lot of people that uh, are ungodly who have an ignorance toward god and his gospel they don't want to have anything to do with it. And it's sad because that's a bridge that I've got to try to gap in this generation. And uh, ignorance for God and His gospel. If they only knew what it could do for them. If they only knew what it could do for them. Not only are we to deny ungodliness, but it says to reject and refuse worldly lust. <laughs> this is one that's probably the, mo- the most difficult to avoid the worldly lust. What a society we live in today. It seems like there's a rat race to get the next thing and to build bigger and to be better than the next guy beside us. And uh, one of the best illustrations I, I've heard of this is we were pastoring out in Wilmot, through a Baptist church, and one guy has a small little mini home. And uh, another guy's got a mansion beside him. And he says, at, at nighttime when you shut your light off and I shut my light off, my house looks just as good as yours. What in the world are we trying to do here? And uh, I was out with Ethan Rush, and I have the opportunity to go out with him twice a week. And he made simple statement. He says, if you are not saved, what are you living for? What's your goal in this life? What are you trying to achieve? And of course, they have no knowledge of the Savior. They don't know what the Savior can do. They don't know the Savior has life within them. So what's their knowledge? Their, their knowledge is to build bigger and outdo the next guy. Their knowledge is to get everything that they can possibly get before exiting this world because they do not know Jesus Christ. And that spoke volumes to me when Ethan Rushton said that. Quite something when we were talking about that. But this worldly lust doesn't only speak of, of, the, of the sexual sins, it speaks of the materialistic way as well. And in society, you know, we're blessed. We're very blessed. And in that blessing, it's very easy for us to lay treasures up here on the earth. And the Bible specifically says in Matthew chapter 6, and verse 19, not to do that. Where's our heart today? The training that we receive in order to adorn our lives with this gospel of God's grace. Where are our hearts? Where are our lives today? It puts it all to end when uh, it says Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 10 says, Hey, I'm going to send fire from heaven. And it's going to melt and devour everything. <laughs> all the stuff you've earned. All the stuff you've worked for. If the rust and the moss don't corrupt it, the fire is sure going to get it. So why, what are we worrying about? Why are we trying to build up this rat race? And there's a strong warning concerning worldly lust. It's given in 1 John chapter 2, and verse 15-17. to 17. If any man love not the Father. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Very strong. And uh, how careful we need to be to abstain from these things that we can so eagerly get trapped into. Flee also. Mewful lust, Timothy is told, and Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.22 that we are to flee every appearance of evil. Attaining worldly lust is appearance of evil. appearance of evil. This grace, in its schooling, it trains us to put away all of these things, to deny all of these things that we are looking to do in the human heart and God by His grace and only in His strength can give us the strength to put away all these things. This grace not only trains us, but it should be seen in our testimony. It should be seen in our testimony. If you look at the continuing, the continuing passage of Scripture in verse 12, it says, "...not only teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, here's, here's what is, is in our testimony. We should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world this is our testimony folks soberly is the righteousness to your It's sorry, soberly is a relationship to yourself and righteously is a relationship to others and godliness is a relationship to god there's three things your relationship to you relationship to others and relationship to god you can have one two or even three all separate on, the, on their own. But together, is what the, it all makes your testimony. Living soberly, speaking of living with sensitivity and to live with a seriousness, simply means we're to live self-controlled lives around the people that we are. It's a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.23, self-control. That's what it means to live soberly. And uh, if we are around people and we don't live self-controlled lives, What's that say about who we are and what God has done in our lives? Self-controlled. That is, living soberly. Living righteously in this world is striving to live upright. As we go about our days and our neighbors see us, we need to show forth a life that would meet God's approval. And our conduct and order is to show forth a life that would be glorifying to God, to point others to. Christ, living uprightly. What's it all about? It's about striving to be conformable to Jesus Christ, in the image of His Son. Romans eight thirty nine, eight twenty nine. Sorry, and uh, that's what it's all about. Living godliness. Our minds are to be on things that last and not fade. And again, that goes back to our training in the in the stage of the human heart wanting to buy more, get more. Our minds are to be on things that are heavenly. Those are the only things that last. This grace trains us. It's shown in our testimony. And not only that, it should thrill us. <laughs> I love this part. should thrill us. In verse 13, 13 it says this, Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Looking for the blessed hope. The word here is rendered, anxiously awaiting with a sense of eagerness. Anxiously awaiting with a sense of eagerness. <laughs> oh, some days I don't... If the rapture were to take place, I would not want to be caught doing what I'm doing. Some days. Looking anxiously, eagerly. His coming could be at any time. I know I send away for books at CBD very often, and I send away for different parcels, and uh, you're tracking that thing right till it comes to the door. You're anxiously awaiting. You want to get that thing. You can see a dog over there on the leash down the road. He wants his master to come to him. He's anxiously waiting for his master to come walk him. He's anxiously waiting for his master to come and get him and to play with him. Different things like that. Anxiously waiting. We're to have a sense of eagerness for this. This thing that is coming. God's promised us eternal life. And uh, he he cannot lie because Titus chapter 1 and verse 2, he says, I am the God that does not lie. What is this blessed hope? Well, from First Timothy chapter 1 and verse 1, it is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. The Lord Jesus Christ Himself. I had to spend a little bit of time on looking for the blessed hope of the glorious God and Savior here because I'm thinking to myself, wrestling a long time with, is this the rapture or is this the second advent of Christ? And I come to a conclusion that it was the rapture of Christ for one reason. When He comes in the rapture, He's taking His saints... Up to heaven to be with him. When he comes back, we're going to be coming with him. So if we're looking for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, I don't think we're going to be coming back with him at that time. I think we're looking to be taken up. I believe it is the rapture myself. And uh, after stu- studying that out, looking for the great God. As we look for his glorious appearing, we should be motivated to live lives that are holy. Be ye holy, for I am holy, as 1 Peter says. Be ye holy, for I am holy. That should actually spur us on to be holy and to live godly lives, knowing that He could come back at any time. What an eagerness that is. Well, this verse also gives one of the greatest statements that I ever recorded in history at the end of verse 13. The great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Same article here. God and Jesus are the same person in this text. God is your Savior. Jesus is your Savior. And this goes back to John chapter 20 and verse 28. You remember Thomas back in the upper room with all the disciples. You remember him who he denied the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, Unless I see the nail-scarred hands and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And he made one of the greatest statements in all of recorded history in regards to the deity of who Jesus Christ was. He looked at him and he said, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. It's the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. God is the Savior. Jesus is the Savior in this text. Many of you will probably remember an old song. Johnny Cook and the Happy Goodmans uh, sang it or wrote it or whatever. and I heard it growing up. A lot of the younger generation probably doesn't know it, but the chorus goes like this. Only the sound of his trumpet keeps me from going home. If things had been left off to me, I'd been gone such a long time ago. I am ready to fly away. I'm also anxious for the rapture day. Everything's in order. My record is clear. Can anybody understand? I just can't wait. What a sense of eagerness that is. I love the fact here it says, everything's in order and my record is clear. Can we say that on a day-to-day basis? I'm ready to leave. God's grace schools us in the fact that it redeems sinners. God's grace saves. It redeems sinners. It brings revelation of the Savior. It schools us by way of training. It schools us by way of our testimony. And it schools us by way of the fact that we should be thrilled about it. We should be thrilled about looking unto Jesus is our thrilling. Thirdly, from verse 14... This grace separates us. It separates us. We're, we're saved by God's grace. Not only to live in the We're not of the world anymore, but we are in the world. We have a job to do. We are separated from the world. This grace you see in verse 14a, it proclaims propitiation. Who gave himself for us. That's the vicarious death. That's the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for all. And that is seen that He was sinless. He's the only one that could do that from 1 John 3, 5. He came was a sacrifice for our sins in 1 John 2, 2 And that was His first coming. And we may not, must not forget why He came. Without Him being the atonement of our sins, we would die because the penalty of sin is death. And it was His vicarious death that he's redeemed us through His precious blood. He's the only one that could do this. It says in 1 Peter 2, 24, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins might live righteously. We're going back to this whole thing of being trained. Might live righteously. By his stripes we were healed. His stripes we were healed. So he proclaims propitiation. And if we are to be separated from the world, in Romans chapter 6, it says, let sin not therefore reign in your mortal body. There should be no sin reigning in your mortal body. Why? Because in verse 17 and 18 of Romans 6, it says, I was once the slave of sin, but now I'm the servant of righteousness. The servant of righteousness. I love that. Proclaims propitiation, but it proves possession as well. It proves possession. Who are you tonight? You're saved in Jesus Christ. It proves possession. And that's seen in the second phrase of verse 14, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto him a peculiar people. Now, that's not odd people. Now, that's not strange people. (laughs) Though we could be that sometimes as Christians over there at MBBI. (laughs) Strange and odd bunch they are. I know, I'm part of them. But uh, this... Peculiar people means special people. He wants to purify unto himself a people. The purification simply is sanctification, separated from sin and devoted to God. Your life wholly devoted to God. Purify through way of sanctification. Peculiar people, all that is, basically, is a special people that he has set apart that are his. He loves them and he wants to be their God. Peculiar people. In First Peter 2, nine it says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. You are separated unto this world. You know, God means to do that. He means to separate you from the world. He means to put not a division between you and the unsaved, but He means to separate you in the fact that now He's given you work that needs to be done. People need to see why you're separated. The grace also frauds passion. The end of verse 14. Zealous of good works. You know, you may not realize it, but people around you know who you are. They know what you're doing. And it was said once, and I think it is very true. Some people don't even read the Bible. Some people don't want to have anything to do with the Bible. But you are an open book and you're going to be the most Bible that they're ever going to read in their whole life and that might be one of the opportunities that you get to share Jesus Christ and prods passion in the sense that let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works which glorify your Father which is in heaven Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16 and if you go back to the Ephesians chapter 2 passage it ends in this we are ordained to do good works when we are saved in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. This grace does three things for us tonight. This grace saves us by way of redemption for sinners. Redemption for sinners. Not only that, it's the revelation of the Savior. The revelation of the Savior through the incarnation. Number two, this grace schools us. It schools us by way of training us the life that we now need to live in aligning our lives to the gospel of God's grace. Not only does it train us, but it should be seen in our testimony in our everyday lives. It trains us. It testifies with us. And number three, not only does it do all that, but it should thrill us. That's looking unto Jesus. And number three, under God's grace separates. Proclaims propitiation as the only one that could make the ultimate sacrifice for you and I. Not only does it do that, but it proves possession. You are His. You are His. Proving possession, and then prodding passion to do good works for others. What about you uh, tonight? I know this, this hits hard for us. hits hard for me. Because in this world, it's very easy to get caught up in a lot of other things that are involved with a perversion of the gospel of God's grace. One guy mentioned Gary Gillian in his book This Church went to market. He says the world has always had an influence on the church but today they've engulfed it. Today they've engulfed the church. and We've got to be careful with that because the pure grace of God and the pure doctrines. It's hard to find that now. It's hard to find that now. Are we living lives that are in adoration and aligning our lives to the gospel of God's grace? That's what he's called us to do called us to do that through saving us schooling us and separating us to a work that he has for us I don't know about you but uh, this this is daily practice daily practice that's why we need purification sanctification he's working on us he's still working on us and praise God for that to make us who he wants us to be and I praise God for that there is not a place tonight that you cannot go that God's grace will never be there. It's always going to be there. Always going to be there. And it's always ready to save anyone who's willing to come unto Him. Let's go back with His training and show people that God's grace saved us, schooled us, and separated us. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the opportunity once again to come before You, Lord, recognizing who we are, recognizing that... Uh, we have hearts that are human. We want to stray away from you at times. And we ask and pray tonight that you would help us to come back to the foot of the cross and, and learn of you so that we may align our lives with the gospel of your grace. Lord, we know today in this world it's, uh, it's so hard to get easily entrapped in the, the things of this world. Not only that, but people that are trying to pervert your grace and give attractive ways uh, to, to serve you. That it is not true. We ask and pray tonight to keep us from that. We would use the book as a, a discerner of what is true and what is not. Bless us now as we pray. To go forth from these doors, uh, may we live for you, Jesus.